Thank you, Joe. Um, I want to begin today by just saying how much I've enjoyed these last two months hearing um, different men in our congregation um, give the message. Got, uh, Chris and Niall and Joe and Anthony, and I think there's more to come, and today's my turn, and it's been a blessing to me, and I hope I can continue that trend. My goal today is to show in, in three parts the grand majesty and wisdom of our Lord God Almighty by looking at and questioning the meaning of Christ's three temptations in the wilderness. Like the book of Revelation, we often read this account in the Bible with perplexed interest, but then kind of shrug and go about our day because we don't, don't really know what to do with it. We are glad that Christ overcomes, surely, but why was there a need for this confrontation to begin with? So let's start this morning by reading um, from Matthew 4, 1 to 11. And I'll be reading from the NIV throughout the message today. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Part one, our confusion. Why is the story in the Bible? What are we supposed to learn from it? Are we supposed to take these examples of daily temptations and be encouraged that our Savior too underwent these trials and overcame? turning rock into bread, jumping off temples, ruling the world. Perhaps we were supposed to learn something about the nature of Christ by them. In the first temptation, Jesus is hungry and is tempted by the devil to use his power to turn rock into bread. In a very similar fashion as he later does at the prompting of his mother with water to wine. Or when he miraculously provides for himself and Peter by making a coin appear from the mouth of a fish. And yet one is labeled a temptation, and the other's signs. In the second temptation, Christ stands upon a high ledge, and the devil seems to dare him to jump. Fling yourself off this high temple. If you are truly the Son of God, he will send his angels to save you. But isn't, this a, very, but isn't a very similar thing already happening, although slower and less dramatic in the wilderness? That after fasting 40 days, that's nearly six weeks, Christ is so weak that God sends his angels to attend to him 
as we read in verse 11, then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. And the third temptation is downright incomprehensible. The devil offers Jesus, the Lord and King of all creation, the kingdoms of the world, for the price of his allegiance, for the price of his soul. Christ responds out of Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. One wonders why he didn't instead quote from the more relevant Psalms 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In other words, it's not yours to give, Satan. Did Satan think he had any leverage at all? Where is the crafty serpent? Where is the roaring lion wandering the earth looking for someone to devour? Here in this story, we have Satan the impotent, Satan the fool. The truth is, at face value, these temptations don't make a whole lot of sense to us. What is going on here? Let's lay some foundation. When we don't understand something in the Bible, we often find ourselves, without first pausing to ponder Scripture's meaning, going immediately to the footnotes of our Bibles or to the Internet to read the commentaries from the experts. It's easier and faster that way. And we all know that efficiency is the key to a deeper understanding. So what do we find in the commentaries? We find pretty consistently the experts painting these satanic temptations as actual struggles within Jesus' soul, and they draw parallels with these struggles in the wilderness with the temptations common to all men. But how? According to the commentaries, the three temptations represent the three human temptations derived from 1 John 2.16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. In the first temptation, Christ was tempted by the lust of the flesh as he struggled with whether or not to use his spiritual ability to serve himself food, that is, provide for himself in his own fleshly wants. In the second temptation, pride of life, as he struggled with his desire to jump off the temple in order to flaunt his power by forcing God's hand and instantly showing his messiahship to the world. And in the third temptation, lust of the eyes, as he struggled with his want to forego the cross and take immediate control over the kingdoms of men. Lust of the flesh, pride of life, and lust of the eyes. In more digestible language, Christ was tempted by selfishness, pride, and power. But is this true? Was Jesus really tempted by any of these things? And do we find encouragement or spiritual direction by this understanding? I'm truly asking here. Other than the general commentary on Christ's temptation in the wilderness, do we ever, anywhere else in Scripture, find Christ struggling with selfishness, with pride, with want of power? Most of us, beneath our kitchen sinks at home or perhaps a cupboard nearby, we have stored a large array of liquids and chemicals, those brightly colored bottles with childproof lids. Who here, in trying to spice up your meals, has been tempted to tap into this resource of interesting flavors? No one. Of course not. It hasn't even entered our minds. There is no temptation, not only because it would taste bad, but because it's poison. And so it is with God. He is not tempted by sin, 
because he knows it for the blatant, nasty poison it is. This is confirmed in James 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. This is intuitive. It makes sense. God cannot be tempted by poison because, unlike us, God cannot be deceived. And yet here in Matthew, we are left with the problem of Jesus being led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Is this not more simply a story about how Christ the Lord was presented with three bottles of poison, saw through the trick and refused to partake? Where is the struggle? Where is the temptation? Stop right there, the commentaries say. Christ was tempted. Don't forget Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15. Let's read Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Tempted in every way as we are. But how? How is this possible for God? The commentaries continue. Well, Christ was fully God, but he was also fully man. And temptation is part of the human experience. Yes, we have heard this teaching and variations of it many times. Christ was fully divine and fully human. And we believe it. And rightly so. This is what scripture teaches. But does this explanation do anything for us other than provide a shortcut to an understanding we have just missed in the taking of it? In other words, does appealing to Christ's humanity really get us any closer to understanding how and why the sinless one could be tempted by the devil? Yes, Christ was a man. But what does this really mean? This is an old theological question. Aside from sharing our physical shape, this tent of skin and bones, what does it mean that Christ was a man? For man is sinful. In many ways, we define what it means to be a man by our sinfulness. Human nature, we call it. Humanity and sinfulness are synonymous. Man is in a dire and broken state a spiral downwards, our fallenness on full display. When one surveys the world, or better yet, looks within oneself and sees all the evil and the blackness, we can know assuredly that it is not in this that Christ shares in our humanity. For no one is righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. But Christ was, Christ was righteous, it is for this reason alone that he could be our perfect sacrifice. So then, if Christ does not share our fallen nature, in what way was he a man? And from whence comes his temptation? Let's read Hebrews 4.15 again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Weakness? He was tempted in every way just as we are in weakness? No. Christ was not weak. You don't remain sinless by being weak. 
Weakness is not a good thing. Weakness is not something of worth or value, something the Lord would choose to share with us. Weakness is worthless. And yet, that is what Scripture teaches. 2 Corinthians 13, 4. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. But why weakness? In John 14, 30-31, during one of his final sermons to his disciples, Jesus says, I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of the world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Or in Matthew 26, 53-54, Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would Scripture be fulfilled that says it must happen in this way. By this we understand that although he had the authority and every right to rebuke the weakness in his flesh and declare himself to be the God he truly is, Christ instead used his weakness, afforded him by his humanity, as an opportunity to show the depth of his love for the Father by giving everything, his will, his desire, his authority, and power over in complete submission to him. And in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, we read, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And this was not easy. We know in his weakness, Christ struggled with this. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Luke twenty-two forty-two. God cannot be tempted, but in his weakness, a man can, even as we've been taught by Scripture, the very good man and woman in the Garden of Eden. And Christ became one of these good men, the last Adam, and overcame, unlike our forefather, by a complete submission, come what may, to the Father's will. Imagine if you were given for a day the ultimate power and authority of Christ. What would you do? How would you change this evil world you see around you? In many and various ways, to be sure. Simply snap your fingers and heal all wounds right now. Yet would your self-proclaimed good actions be the will of the Lord? The problem is mankind, in his weakness, does not in completeness perceive God's ways as just. And because of this misunderstanding, this lack of knowledge, this impatience, we accuse him and tempt him to use his power to act immediately in ways that appeal to our limited sense of justice and fairness or self-preservation. Christ, as a weak man, was likewise tempted to act. In Matthew 23, 37, Christ cries, O Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. If he longed for this, as God Almighty, 
Why didn't he do it? Here in the wilderness, Christ is indeed being tempted as a man in every way that we are. But we need to understand and remember that we, and consequently our temptations, are but an image, a likeness of God. Here is the real thing. Christ, before the creation of the world, is the image of God. Hebrews 1.3 The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And this exact representation of the Lord's being must now, in the weakness of a man, come face to face with the blackest of evil and be tempted to deal with it as a weak man might, if he were given the absolute power and authority of the Lord. With all this in mind, let us try to understand what is actually happening here in the story of Christ's temptation in the wilderness. So part two, understanding the three temptations of Christ. One thing we know for certain is that this story came directly from Jesus' lips, as he was the only flesh and blood witness to these events in the wilderness. He told his followers this story, and his followers, primarily Matthew and Luke, passed it on to us. And because we know that this story came directly from the good teacher himself, it is guaranteed that he is trying to tell us something important, as in everything he has ever done or said. This is further proven by the story's parable-like qualities. That is, the primary purpose of this story does not seem to be a factual recounting of what happened only, but rather is conveyed to us in such a way as to highlight a deeper meaning. In verse 8, we read, Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All the kingdoms of the world? If this is purely literal, then it certainly did not take place on planet Earth, as no such mountain exists. Not now, not then. No, Christ is analogizing a very real cosmic battle between himself and the prince of darkness. That we might better, that he might better teach us the deeper spiritual nature of this titanic clash. And yet, just as Israel's teacher Nicodemus, when told that in order to enter the kingdom of God, he must be born again, we often miss the entire point. Nicodemus did not understand what Christ was talking about because he was taking, he was thinking far too superficially. That is, he took Christ's words at face value without going deeper. How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time in his mother's womb to be born. We ask similar questions of Christ's temptation. Christ's words are spirit and life, and are always far more meaningful than what a superficial reading might render. Every little detail Christ utters is important as he tries to give us a glimpse into the real world dancing behind our physical reality. For look at the symbols. The three temptations employ as props three very common symbolic items Jesus makes heavy use of during his ministry. In the first temptation, bread, in the second, the temple, and the third, kingdom. I encourage you to look these words up, bread and temple and kingdom, up in the back of your Bibles and your concordance and see the extensive list of verses referencing each one. 
When Jesus talks about bread, he is usually not talking about the grain product, but rather God's provision, ultimately fulfilled in himself. I am the bread of life, or breaking the bread, he said, this is my body, which I lay down for you. When Jesus talks about the temple, he is rarely referring to the brick and mortar building in Jerusalem, but rather the true dwelling place of the Lord, which is where? Even when Jesus is standing next to it and looking at the physical building, he speaks of his body when he says that he will destroy it and raise it up in three days. And later, Paul and the disciples refer to the temple as the human component of the church. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Or 1 Peter 2.4-5, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And when Jesus talks about setting up the kingdom of God, he never refers to the physical kingdoms of this world now. He is not interested in ruling these kingdoms, but rather something far greater, the kingdom of men's hearts. Luke 17, 20 to 21. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Finally, and probably most important clue to unraveling the meaning of, the, of Christ's temptations is the fact that this story is a scaled-down model of the events that occurred in the Old Testament when the Israelites tried God in the wilderness. As summed up, in Psalms 106, 13 to 14. But they soon forgot what he had done and did not wait for his counsel. In the desert, they, give it, they gave in to their cravings. In the wasteland, they put God to the test. They put God to the test. The key difference between the story of God's testing or temptation by the Israelites in the Old Testament and Jesus' temptation in the New Testament is that instead of the Israelites doing the tempting, we here have Satan doing the dirty work. And Satan, as a stand-in for the Israelites and by proxy a represent, representative of all mankind, boldly makes his accusations known. In Matthew 16, 23, Jesus rebukes Peter. Here Peter is trying to talk Christ out of his future sacrifice, and Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Who has in mind the things of men? Satan does. Satan, the accuser. The accuser not necessarily of men, but of God. In a very real way, Satan is on man's side of the great rebellion. And from the very beginning in the garden ordained a guardian cherub in Eden, per Ezekiel 28, the serpent has taught mankind, you and I, how to expertly navigate and question God's ways. And he knows exactly and precisely where to hit God to cause him the most pain. And according to Hebrews 2.18, Christ did indeed suffer. 
The three temptations Jesus outlines and responds to in Matthew and Luke represent the three most fundamental accusations all men throw at God and are the roadblocks we must, like Christ, overcome in order to come to a full and complete trust in the Lord as Savior of men. These accusations are very real, they are very relevant, and have been around since the beginning of time. But let me quote from a more modern example to make my point. 300 B.C., the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus speaks for us all when he famously quotes, Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent, that is wicked. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And thus Satan, 300 years later, smelling the weakness in his opponent, pulls out these age-old accusations, hardened and sharpened for battle, and swings them heartily for Jesus' throat. These are not your run-of-the-mill daily temptations. These are the real deal and very serious. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are truly the Son of God, you have the power to provide for your body wholly and completely right now. Why don't you do it? Look around you at all the desperate need in the world. Why don't you at least provide for the least of these, the widows and the orphans? Your people, your brothers and sisters are crying out. The power to rain food from heaven, to turn even these rocks into bread, and you deliberately let your body starve. Certainly you see this. Certainly, if you are the son of God, you have the power to end this right now. There is no need for any of this. Your children are crying out, and you remain silent? And Christ, hurt deeply by the accusation and the truth he knows men believe it to be, is tempted to act, but instead bows in submission to the God he knows, the great and holy God of all things, and proclaims, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Indeed, Satan nods. And seeing the opportunity, he pulls back his tongue and goes in a second time, this time aimed directly at Jesus' heart, the temple of his Holy Spirit. But they don't keep your word. They might know it, but they certainly don't obey it. Let them die in their sin. Isn't this better than letting them live on in full and blatant disobedience, sustaining them by your very word? They might honor you with their lips, but we both know their hearts are far from you. Why defile your holy name? Why make your dwelling among them? Why build your temple out of their corrupted flesh? If you are indeed the Son of God, throw yourself down. Cast yourself from this false and unrighteous and crumbling facade, this humiliating and pathetic image of your almighty spirit, is it not written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully? They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Abandon these stones. We both know you have the right. You don't need them. Destroy what is evil and take your rightful place at the Father's side. And like a parent 
whose own children have just been threatened. Christ steps between us and the accuser and proclaims, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It is no accident that Christ quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Christ is threatening destruction. He is tempted to strike out in righteous anger, for Satan has struck a nerve. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Then why call him God? Since, in Satan's eyes, Christ has failed the first and second temptations, the third temptation comes as a natural conclusion. Case closed. Checkmate. It's not called the problem of evil for nothing. Since there is obviously terrible evil in the world, Satan notes he has so far survived this encounter unscathed, and this king cannot or will not take care of it, he is obviously not the God he says he is. There's no way around it. Satan's got him from the idle threats of the defendant himself. Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Satan has called his bluff, and thinking he has won, he mocks his rival's loss, tempting him to embrace and acknowledge his weakness or face the consequences. Note that Satan does not start the final temptation with, if you are the son of God. It is now apparent to the devil that he is not. Christ is just a man, and Satan speaks to him as he would a man. The age-old trick. Come, let me show you the kingdoms of the world. I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I wish. If you will just bow down and worship me, it will all be yours. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. With these defiant words, Christ has just concluded negotiations. And from Luke's account, when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. We all know what that means, and so did Christ. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their life were held in their slavery by their fear of death. Lured in by Christ's weakness, Satan fell right into the trap. And because Christ overcame his temptations by giving over his weakness to the will of his Father above, we are now free. Part three, understanding our role in all of this. There is terrible evil and darkness in the world. About a year ago, 
parts of China experienced heavy, extreme rains. And in the large city of Zhengzhou, people driving home for the evening took the normal and quickest route to get to their apartments. A large four-lane highway diverting them beneath the city via a 2.5-mile-long tunnel cut beneath the foundations of the large buildings on the surface. Concrete and bumpers at every side, families and commuters soon found themselves caught in a packed traffic jam as the rains caused chaos in the city above. The water continued to fall, and before long, everyone in the tunnel realized they were in trouble. Brown water began rushing in around the wheels of their vehicles, and trapped as they were in a line of traffic beneath the city, there was nothing they could do but wait in terror as the tunnel lights dimmed and dark water continued to rise. They didn't have to wait long. Within five minutes, the entire tunnel was underwater, and thousands of men, women, and children were drowned. If one is even a casual reader of history, this terror and suffering is barely a footnote in the chronicle of tremendous suffering and death and terror that has and is still happening to man. But who needs the history books? We witness this darkness every day. The general friction of life, death and disease or fear of them around every corner. Why does God allow such things? It shakes us to our core. And if we, though we are evil, can see the darkness in these things, where is our good God? If you are the son of God, why do you allow so much suffering in the world? Why not instantly fix everything with your power? If you are suffering as much as us, why not turn these stones into bread? Why not provide for and save those in desperate need? And with such questions, many men reject the goodness of our Lord and fall away, forgetting that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we read in John chapter 1, in the beginning was that word, and the word was God, and the word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. No, we do not understand it. The world is a dark and cruel place. How are we supposed to believe? You have cast yourself from the temple, and there is no holiness here. What is man that you are mindful of him? Is it not simpler and more rational to assume that you have abandoned us, or even better, that you do not exist in the first place? We are alone. To stand on this belief is far more bearable than to stand on a belief in a God who lets us suffer than a God who does not care. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And with such words, many men test the promises of our Lord and fall away, forgetting that God has said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. There is no need, for he has promised, I will never fail you, I will never abandon you, Hebrews 13, 5. But like the Israelites in the desert, out of our anger and resentment, we grow impatient. Our trials and tribulations are too great. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, 
There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Exodus 16.3. No, we men have taken in the evidence and have concluded that you are not the true God at all. Since you will not help us, we will do it ourselves. Building the world in our image, in our splendor. Bow before us or get out of our way. Feeling unprovided for and abandoned, we turn to the work of our own hands for our hope. Reliance on our own strength is the final and greatest temptation of all men. And it is nothing new. Understanding Moses as a type of Christ, we read in Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Likewise, since Christ's ascension, we don't know what has happened to our Lord. And in our impatience, we test God by building gods for ourselves with our own hands, things and systems we rely on to get us through each day. By our lives and what we produce by them, our fruits, we show who we believe the real God to be. And often that is ourselves and the things we build to satisfy our desires or appease our fears or direct our futures. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. Like Satan, we might even offer to give God the entire kingdom of our heart. If only he bows, when we need him to, to our advice on how to best run it. Forgetting that we are to worship the Lord our God and serve him only. But do not despair. John 1:14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. The two things that Satan and the world cannot understand. We do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is truth. And the truth is that by his grace, he has not abandoned us to die. In grace and truth, he shows us the meaning of true love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Satan tempts us with evil. Not only in the doing of evil, but in causing us to question why a good God allows it. And he is a powerful foe. Very convincing. How do we fight him in our temptations? This is the conclusion of the matter. It's very simple. If anyone is in trouble, he should pray. From Luke 11, 1 through 4. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. 
and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. The three temptations of Christ, that is, the threefold accusation a man throws at him to justify his unbelief, that is, he is absent in the presence and suffering of evil and therefore not God, these have their answer in the prayer Christ has taught us as we hang on him in faith. By the Lord's Prayer, we acknowledge in faith that we will worship the Lord our God and serve him only. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. That we will rely on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Give us this day our daily bread. And that we will not put his love to the test by refusing to forgive others as he first forgave us. And in remembering these things, we will be led not into temptation, but into the kingdom and the power and the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord bless our meal, and may you go in peace. You're dismissed.